And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome back to the latest edition of The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined, as always, by my colleagues Stuart Mandel. And Stu, before we talk spring football and all the games that were this past weekend, i got to ask you, how much of the Sunday Masters coverage did you watch? Well, if you're talking about like sit on a couch and, and watch uninterrupted, not very much. It was more one of those things where, as it became apparent that Tiger had a chance to win it, uh, and I was at the gym and I found myself checking my phone a little bit more often or, you know, watching it on the uh, elliptical for 20 minutes and so on. I didn't really, I didn't actually get to see what happened until I watched like the last hour of the Encore broadcast. Because by that time, you know, I, the funny thing about Twitter is like, I felt like I'd watched it, but I hadn't actually watched it, if you know what I mean. Wait, so you didn't watch any of it live or very little of it? Live? No, I, I was, first of all, I remember it started really early our time. And I was kind of on the go that morning. I kind of used up my my recreational sports watching on the NCAA tournament and and the spring games that we're about to talk about a little bit. But you know, I'm not the world's biggest golf fan, but I I'm not the world's any golf fan, but I do recognize the enormity of the moment. The one time I liked that I was kind of into golf would have been like the late '90s, early 2000s when he was really at his peak. So it's not like I haven't watched Tiger in a major tournament before. I mean, I've, I tell you this much, I've read Mike Rosenberg and everybody else who's written a great story about him. So it's like I got into it, but it was almost too late. I got into it after all of you who watched it live. Here's what I thought, just as somebody who played golf in college and, and covered it when I first started out as a reporter. So Tiger Woods you know, had this machine-like quality for much of his dominance as a, as a pro golfer. But the thing that kind of resonated with me as somebody who doesn't watch every PJ event at this stage of my life was when you see him make the final putt to win. And then all of a sudden you see a complete change in his expression and he goes and his 10 or 11 year old son just basically jumps in his arms and it's a really sweet moment. And I think what was really cool to see was you know, you can talk about the comeback story and everything else, but just like such a human story, you know, in there. And again, I don't know, sometimes do you watch stuff differently because you're a parent now? Does it kind of like I know for me, I think I'm not saying if you if you don't have kids, you cannot connect with this story or weren't moved by it. But I just felt like that was the part was like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. You're getting goosebumps at something that I mean, I think it's great for golf and the sport when somebody who is such a huge draw, not just for his other golfers, but that moment was so memorable for me. Like that's the mem that's the thing I will take away. So as, as you said, you're not a big golf fan, but I'm curious, aside from the sport we cover, which is obviously college football, what do you, what sporting events most stick in your mind where you're like, okay, I remember where I was when I saw that 
and I'm not talking about like something horrible, horrific world catastrophe. I'm talking about just like the sporting event and maybe the, the I can't believe what I just saw quality of it. Well, first of all, I do view everything differently, not just sports, but everything through the lens of a parent. In fact, just, you know, we're recording this on Monday, and unfortunately this morning was the awful fire in Paris, the Cathedral of Notre Dame, which I have seen in person and been to Paris many times. It's heartbreaking. And I hadn't thought of this, but Joan Neeson from SI tweeted how when she was a little girl, she loved reading the Madeline books, Madeline books that are all set in Paris and have that as a backdrop. And she had the image, and when I saw it, I got, got the chills because... I, our daughter is Madeline, and I've read her those Madeline books probably 800 times, and you know things like that. That would never, have, I never would have made that connection, right? Obviously, before I was a parent, you know, like I said, I didn't watch this live, but we were sitting at a actually one of your favorite restaurants, Bruce, yesterday. Just kind of happenstance, ended up at the counter. Is that still a favorite of yours? Not quite, but I would go to one if I if if there was one in my area. It's not the greatest place. It's not the greatest burger joint by any means, but it's a good place to bring a three-year-old. And they had the TV on. The Masters was over, but they were showing the highlights. And my three-year-old has never seen golf ever. So I explained to her, I go, this is golf. And the questions she had were, she really liked when he hit it. She goes, I like it when he hits it in the hole. And I chuckled. And then she asked, her question was, um, why is he wearing red? Which obviously is a little hard to explain. But then the better question was, why is his jacket green and not red like his shirt? So... That was my master's moment Sunday. Okay, uh, you asked me. Give me the sporting, sporting events, events that you most. That remember most where you were. Yeah, and they're not not college football related. Well, I mean, most of them would have to do with when I was growing up, and I was a huge Cincinnati Reds fan, and Bengals fan, and Xavier basketball fan. Like I remember where I was for almost any, you know, like the 1990 World Series championship and things like that. But are you talking about like a? Kind of it could be anything. You know, for me, I'm a little older. I definitely remember the miracle on ice beating the Russians and Al Michaels call Mm -hmm. uh, because that had been such a dramatic buildup to that. I remember Kirk Gibson's home run in the world series where he hobbled around the Mm -hmm, bases, mm -hmm. even though, you know, I wouldn't say I was a, you know, a huge fan of either team or have anything invested. Like I remember Steelers Super Bowls. I grew up a Steelers fan. I remember, you know, Lynn Swan's amazing catches and, and some of the back and forth with, with the Cowboys, certainly, in the Super Bowls. And I remember, uh, this isn't, you know, this isn't like I was a, you know, I grew up in a family where my brother was a Giants fan. I remember when the Giants finally beat the 49ers. But I'm just talking about something that was like, you know, like there's there's one of those things where you were talking about Xavier basketball and everything where you're like, okay, this is personal to me. But then you're watching something that, like yesterday, I feel like it was a communal thing where you're watching something. Again, I don't want to force it on you because I don't think it was something that, you know, obviously you're not a not really that in golf. So, but like, I think for a lot of people, when you're watching it and everybody else is kind of, you know, wrapped in the moment, you know, the Kirk Gibson home run to me kind of was like that. Certainly, I think the Miracle on Ice was like that. The Buster Douglas fight had happened here and was not something where most people couldn't see it. You know, I remember the Buster Douglas upset of Mike Tyson happened, I think, the same exact same time as Spud Webb winning the slam dunk contest. And I don't think either one of those was like uh, like as accessible on to the TV audience as they are would be now. You know, whereas if this Buster Douglas Mike Tyson thing happened, even if you didn't pay for it, a lot of people probably would have watched it on Periscope for free or something. Or you would have you seen know, it that kind of deal. 
to be clear, I fully recognize that yesterday was one of the biggest sports moments probably of my lifetime, just because I wasn't like pre-planning to sit down and watch the Masters. I mean, I feel like I was a little bit part of the communal experience and I just, just by keeping up with it, you know, and, and as, because remember he was down to what was that like the 11th or 12th hole? He was still down to. And well, when we came back when like, so the, I had my son's uh, baseball game. It was basically from eight 30 to 10 Pacific time. I came back and he was in a five way tie for the lead. I think on the 14th hole and all of a sudden, Everybody else kind of fizzled. I mean, I'm watching Molinari just kind of, I don't say meltdown, but just really struggling. Yep. And he finished strong, whereas everybody else kind of just kind of fizzled. And about three holes, you're seeing this is probably going to happen. And then it would take like a big collapse for him not to happen, you know, where all he has to do is bogey the last hole to win. We've already gone pretty far down the golf rabbit hole, but I just thought it was just such a, a really spectacular kind of thing that we just don't see very often in sports as much as we see like big moments this was like on another level i thought i think in recent times the some of the best communal sports watching moments have been through the u.s in the world cups you know obviously they haven't gone very far but you know and i'm not even again this is not a sport that i'm a huge fan of in soccer but you just there's something about rooting for the u.s like think about landon donovan's goal in 2010 i remember exactly where i was watching that and Twitter was a thing at that point. Everybody just exploded. I can remember being at a sports bar in Brooklyn with hundred, you know, jam-packed place watching. I forget who they played in the once they actually got out of group play, they lost that game. I remember being actually with you, I think, in Manhattan Beach when they lost when they got eliminated in 2014. And uh, those those are the ones that stand out to me in terms of recent years. I also remember as a kid watching the Olympics when um, when Jackie Joyner Kersey burst onto the scene when Mary Decker at the time, I believe, fell and how shocking that was. So it's cool that we still have these because obviously there's eight gazillion other things you can be watching now as opposed to maybe when we were growing up and there were three things on TV at any given time and everybody was watching one of them. But yeah, I would definitely say what happened on Sunday uh, would qualify as one of those. Well, Stu, I know people listen to us for the college football that's the thing. Oh, I, I spent a lot of time watching sports on TV this weekend. It was exhibition football games. Yeah. So, by the way, I was like, I was, my son was excited to watch it, and then I had to explain to him, well, Alabama's playing Alabama, and that that part was like a little confusing to him. We're watching Michigan State. Well, Michigan State's playing Michigan State. Well, why is he wearing a black jersey? Well, that means they're not allowed to touch the quarterbacks on. So it's just a little bit of a challenge. But, you know, look, uh, we've talked about this a lot. You take these things with a grain of salt and try not to read too much into it. But what was the biggest takeaway of all the stuff you watched in college football this weekend? So I'm actually somebody who does read in, uh, stuff into the spring games. Now you have to, when you see the numbers, look at our, were they playing the first team defense or the second team defense? Mm-hmm. Every, every school does it a little bit differently. But uh, I just feel like over the years, there have been a lot of cases where somebody had a breakout performance. I mean, I watched Trevor Lawrence's spring game last year and was like, yep, he'll be the starting quarterback within the first few weeks of the season. Jameis Winston had an amazing spring game his redshirt freshman year uh, when he was competing with Jay Coker. So you, you do see these things translate. You see them the other way, too, where somebody really struggles and like, oh, that's not a good sign. I do think it's more obvious at a position like quarterback than it is good luck identifying the defensive players from one of these spring games, because in most cases, they're not allowed to do anything. You know, Ohio State, they weren't even tackling them to the ground. But, okay, let me start with Ohio State. 
Obviously, much has been made about Justin Fields. He and Trevor Lawrence were the, you know, the standout recruits, quarterback recruits in last year's class, and he transfers from Georgia, and he's immediately eligible. He had a 98-yard touchdown pass in this spring game that was, was all that. I think he may have thrown it 40 yards downfield, and uh, his receiver took it the rest of the way. But in general, he definitely looked like a work in progress. And I thought Doug Lamarie's from Cleveland.com put it best. He was like, you know, last year it was Dwayne Haskins and Joe Burrow battling in this game, and they both went on to have, you know, to lead very successful teams. He's like, neither of these guys competing today, Justin Fields and Matthew Baldwin, would have beaten out Joe Burrow last year. So it's kind of like, you let's temper expectations here a little bit. This guy is probably not going to, he may end up being the starter and he may end up having a good season, but it's not going to be instant impact, I don't think, the way... I don't think he's going to have anything close to the kind of season Haskins had last year. Just He seems like he's more of a work in progress. I'm going to hold off on that. I, don't, I think pump the brakes on the pump the brakes. Well, you're not ready to make no. any conclusions about anybody, from what I can tell. Well, I just don't, I just don't think you can read too much about, okay, this is... I think they're all work in progress, to be honest. I mean, nobody was going to predict Joe Burrow been where he's at right now, where people think he's going to have a really good career at LSU. And Dwayne Haskins threw 50 touchdowns, which I don't think anybody saw that coming out of last year's spring game. He he looked good, but it wasn't to this degree, right? So, Can I just give you a quick point of comparison? I know you watched the Notre Dame game. I did. Ian Book, yeah. you know, returning starting quarterback, pretty good quarterback last year. Just, you know, he looked the part. He, he looks like a guy who is now entering his second full season as starter and is in complete command of the offense. That's not what you were seeing. First of all, that would be a very high bar to begin with. But, you know, there is a there is a point of comparison where you're seeing a guy who is in kind of mid-season form versus a guy who played sparingly for Georgia last season and is still fairly young, clearly has all the talent in the world, but, you know, it still has to, still has a lot of things to work on. Well, one of the things that unlike, again, I don't want this to be a negative on Dwayne Haskins, but a big part of of uh, Justin Fields' game is his legs. And we saw some of that, but can't really tell a ton of that in a game where he can't get tackled, right? right. So whereas Dwayne Haskins, he's not beaten, contrary to what Stephen A. Smith once tried to say, he's not, he's not, that's not his game. He's not a mobile quarterback. So I think there's... You know, some guys, and I, I would put Justin Fields to, in this category, sometimes you talk to coaches and they're like, we didn't know how good he was until the game started because all the times where you think you're tackling him and Kyler Murray fits into, the, fit into this category, you don't know how special he is until everything's going on real around him. And now I'm not saying he's going to, Justin Fields is going to win the Heisman this year like Kyler Murray did, but I do think this is where it can get a little, you get into a gray area with it. You know, Garrett Wilson, who was a highly touted receiver, definitely looked the part, made a great play. For, he had uh, a big time catch passes. on one of those yeah. touchdowns. I also yeah, think that wasn't a just, yeah. it wasn't a Justin Fields throw. It was, it was Matthew Baldwin, who's the other quarterback, who's basically the guy who's also a Texas kid from, from the Austin area, who is the guy who's, who he's competing with for the job. You know, again, Ohio State's an interesting situation right now because – Half the staff is gone. You know, Mike Yersich is now the quarterback coach there. And you got two new defensive coordinators, co-coordinators, and Greg Schiano has moved on. So we're going to see how all the pieces come, you know, fit together. Right now, I think Ohio State is, to me, the front runner for the Big Ten. 
But the school we didn't get to see is a very interesting one, and that's that's Michigan because their spring game wasn't on TV. I mean, it wasn't really even a spring game. I don't think it was a practice with a little bit of, of scrimmaging at the end. I one more name I wanted to mention with Ohio State Master Teague. With Mike Weber gone, J.K. Dobbins is clearly the show, but obviously there's going to, you know, he's not going to do it alone. This guy, Master Teague, highly rated recruit, looks like he'll emerge as kind of the the one B to his one A. Marcus Crowley, also a guy to keep an eye on there too, the other running back. Yeah, so all I saw of Michigan was uh, one of their beat writers, Angelique Changelis, tweeted uh, some video she took of some of the plays they ran, and it did look like, uh, you know, the kind of offenses Josh Gaddis has come from. A little more spread out, clearer run-path option plays, with, uh, you know, like a little bit a little bit of tempo as well. So I think that's what everybody is most curious about with them. And uh, we got just a tiny little taste of it. You want to get back to Notre Dame? So we... I think we both are optimistic about Ian Book and Notre Dame and the offense there. Their offensive line, their tackles at least struggled with some really good edge rushers, I thought. But again, you know, we'll see what it what it looks like in the fall when it really matters. How optimistic are you about the Irish after last season? Yeah, I mean, I think their offense should be really good. I know they lost Dexter Williams, but Jafar Armstrong looked great in that spring game, and he, you know, got off to a great start last year before injuries. You know, you've got some really good receivers like Chase Claypool. With Ian Book as quarterback, they should be really good on offense. The problem is if he gets hurt, because you and I were talking about this a little bit on offline. Poor Phil Jerkovic, you know, himself a fairly highly rated recruit the year before, got sacked 12 times. Uh, now, granted, it's a spring game. You can't get touched. There were definitely a couple where it was like, ah, that shouldn't be counted a sack. But others, he just held it and held it and held it. To the point where Chris Sims, who was the color guy, would say, just throw it already. So that was a rough, you know, and our, our, our Notre Dame writer, Pete Sampson, wrote about, wrote about that and, and what you should take from it. So, and then, like you said, the offensive line wasn't doing, that second string offensive line wasn't able to hold up at all. So barring injuries, they should be pretty good on offense. Defense, they had a lot to replace, but I still think, you know, Jalen Elliott's a really good player. Like, I think Notre Dame should be really good again. I think so, too. Question is, can they be great? And you know what? I don't think we're going to see anything in the spring that will be able to give us a read on that. Nope. Um, I think you'll know everything but, you need to know about Notre Dame on September 21st when they go play between the hedges against the Georgia Bulldogs. All right. That's a, that is definitely one to look forward to. We had a lot of other stuff from the spring. Anything else that, you know, we both watched a lot of stuff. Yeah, well, we, we both... talked about Ohio State-Michigan. Let's talk about Penn State for a second. I tuned into that one for quite a while. First of all, shout out to Matt Millen, who made his triumphant return to the broadcast booth. Yeah, and I think to me that was the most, honestly, the most significant news that we got of anything that happened in, in spring football over the weekend, just after the heart transplant. I think it's it's pretty awesome that he is back and doing what he loves. And um, you could see him get emotional when uh, Lisa Byington, who's his broadcast partner for BTN, was talking to him about about just kind of the support he's gotten and the big crowd support he got when he was shown on the Jumbotron and all those things. And he was fairly bashful about the attention. But it's one of these human stories that I don't think how, you know, you don't have to be a Penn State fan to be moved by, you know, this guy whose whole life has been has been football and quintessential tough guy and, and everything he's had to, to, to battle through. And now to see him back, I think that was, like I said, bigger than anything that happened on the field there. Penn State's got a lot of good young talent. You know, Noah Kane is big time freshman running back, and you could you could see he's the part. I don't think he'll be 
the main guy right from the beginning. Uh, yeah, Slade's I mean, they still have Ricky really Slade. Good. Ricky mm-hmm. Slade's really talented, but they have recruited really well. And I think, you know, Micah Parsons was a was a big factor there last year as a true freshman. I think we're going to see a bunch of other guys. You're going to see a bunch of like 18 and 19 year olds who I think will will make a big impact on the defense. Now, I don't know if they can be a top five kind of team, but if they can, you obviously have to replace a great quarterback there in Trace McSorley and Sean Clifford. They're very high on him, and he did some did some good things this you know yesterday or two over the weekend. But obviously, there's Tommy Stevens is in the picture as well. You know, once he gets healthy, you mentioned Noah Kane, Ricky Slade. They got KJ Hamler. They have a bunch of really good young receivers who didn't get a chance really to play much last year that they're going to be counting on. But I don't know. I'm I'm fascinated to see what happens. We mentioned Michigan. You see some 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 transition with certainly Urban Meyer moving on at Ohio State. I mean, do you think this is going to be a year where we have three teams in the top ten from the from the Big Ten East? I mean, I was just going to say, I you know, you mentioned earlier you think Ohio State's the the front runner to win the Big Ten. They seem to go into every season with that status. I unfortunately jumped off the bandwagon last year when Urban Meyer got suspended and. Uh, and regretted that prediction, but I don't know that there's much separating those three teams going into this season because of the combination of Ohio State and all the change that you talked about, not just a quarterback, but in the coaching staff as well. And, you know, look, Penn State's been right there with them on the field the past three years. I think people might dismiss them a little bit because of no Trace McSorley, but there's still a lot of talent there. And then Michigan, who I swore I would never get back on their bandwagon ever again after last season, after last season's Ohio State game. But, you know, at least it does seem like he's Harbaugh is addressing the one thing I most wanted him to address in terms of modernizing his offense. So I think, yes, the answer to your question is yes. I could think you could see three top ten teams. I'm pretty much with you on that. And I wouldn't ro- roll out Michigan State. Their defense is really, really good. And Brian Lewerke, who was banged up last year, is back, back uh, new hairstyle, and seemed to have a good spring. We'll see what kind of talent is around him, skills wise. But I, I think they, their defense is so good that to me, they're—I I know they're a top twenty-five team. I don't know if they have enough firepower as those other teams do, you know, to help their quarterback out. If they do, then I think they're right there too. Now, let me ask you a question: From put on your TV broadcast hat. I assume you watched Alabama. I and, did, And yes. I assume you watched Clemson the week before. I did. So in both of those games, you know, a spring game is a chance to just kind of do things a little bit differently. Like Notre Dame did the whole game from the Skycam, which was kind of cool, I thought. Do you like it? I did. I don't know if I would, you know, it's great for a spring, spring game. I don't know if I would want to see the big Saturday night game that I'm all fired up to watch in that from that angle i mean you definitely see some plays develop that you don't from the other from the from the more traditional view but it was very interesting and i was like "Mm, this is kind of cool again to me for a secondary i don't know if it would be good for the primary it's a little bit jarring obviously since you've been watching football from a certain angle your whole life but i will say like i mean what you particularly see more of and just to give people a sense here since they probably didn't watch the notre dame spring game the sky cam basically gives you the ability to move around a little bit before the snap so you're not it's not like a straight line necessarily and you I, what you could see was what the defense was doing you could see who they were bringing mm-hmm. you could see what kind of coverage they were going to be in so anyway but Alabama and Clemson the interesting thing there was in both games they had in Clemson it was Herb Street and Galloway were on the field with Mike's and they were talking to Dabo literally the whole I don't think this was the plan because they had a play-by-play guy 
So it seemed like they intended for this to be kind of a once in a once in a while thing, but basically Dabo being Dabo talked to them the whole entire game and was saying like, this is, okay, they're going to run this play now, and then they would run the play, and he'd say, ah, oh, this guy did this right, this guy did this wrong. Or he would give you a little backstory on some of the younger players that were involved. And then Saban uh, at Alabama, Laura Rutledge, uh, at least a couple times when I was watching, got him like as a walk and talk as the game was unfolding. Uh, he was giving his little candid assessment. So I don't know. I thought that was an interesting way to watch it, to watch what is essentially a exhibition game as well. When are you ever going to hear Nick Saban's in-game thoughts? Well, they, they also did that at the LSU one with Marcus Spears and Greg McElroy down on the field, uh, which I thought was interesting because Marcus Spears is about as big as anybody in, in TV media, and he seemed to be a little concerned about somebody running into him. And I'm not sure there's anybody close to as big <laughs> as him. So, but here's what I think is the spring games, and, and I've kind of ribbed you about this online. I think actually the most valuable stuff we get from the spring games is when the announcers are talking about these programs because chances are they spent the last 36 or 48 hours before kickoff around these teams and talked to a bunch of people inside the program. So they have a really good perspective on what you, where these teams are because the reality is a lot of these teams are not going to show much in, in that setting because they know the games are on TV. So you get to hear a perspective on the team that I think to me, that's the part that is most valuable about any of these things. You know, it's the same reason why I love the, that big 10 road show that Dave Rebson and Donardo and Howard Griffin do is because they're there on the ground and you get to get access from it. I mean, and I, I think I've mentioned this to you and some of our colleagues at The Athletic, that to me, the best thing about when I go on the road in the spring, the only thing better than getting to watch practice is getting to watch film of the practice with the coaches because you really hear, you get real insight into the personnel and who's doing what. And that's where I think, you know, like I said, I, I think it, it does bring value. And and so I was interested to hear, especially Dabo. I mean, to me, Dabo was different than the other two broadcasts of Alabama and LSU because he was really invested in, in what you're seeing. And I thought that that was very interesting to hear his commentary and, and, and those guys back and forth with him. It was a little, it made it a little hard to follow the game, to be honest. Uh, but once you got used to it and accepted the fact that he was going to talk the entire time, uh, I think you could tell ESPN was a little thrown off by it. Cause there were times when they also, they had a lot of people there. They also had Marty Smith. And I swear there were a couple of times when Marty Smith was interviewing um, Jeff Scott the offensive coordinator who was calling the plays, but the mic was still live with Dabo and the other guys, and they, they were both happening at the same time. Anyway, it's just spring. Everybody's uh, sorting out the kinks. Um, one last, this is not a spring game, but actually a scrimmage I wanted to ask you about at your alma mater. Tate Martell, mm -hmm. it's been, the word all spring has been that Tate Martell is really struggling. And at this, this open spring scrimmage they had the other day, it got so bad that he was getting booed at one point which seems really extreme that if the fans, and, and who knows if it was 10 people or 100, I don't know, the fans would boo their own quarterback in a spring scrimmage. I'm not entirely surprised that he's not necessarily the savior, but I think it's unfortunate. I mean, we talk about this sometimes. I don't, I don't you know, they're not pro athletes. I don't, I don't think any college quarterback deserves to be booed, especially not by his own fans, uh, at a spring scrimmage. So... How much of that, though, do you think is his a product of his his persona, for better or worse? I think the expectations are pretty high. Again, like you said, we have no idea 
what the context of it was, how much it was. He was three of nine with an interception. And from just digging around it a little bit, they were without their starting center and two of their best receivers plus their most talented tight end. So I don't think any of the quarterbacks there lit it up. But I'm sure some of it is, I don't want to say he has a brash personality, but he has a strong online you know, Twitter personality. And that preceded him before Ohio State. So, look, I think the expectations there are really high because of that. But he's not the expected starter right now. Nikosi Perry is a guy who I think has has a little bit of the lead going in. And that might surprise some people on the ex, you know, on the outside of it. And I think because people said, oh, this guy was a former five star and he just got, you know, eligible. Uh, you know, the NCAA cleared him that they just automatically assumed, you know, this isn't necessarily like this isn't Jalen Hurts transferring to Miami. This was a largely unproven player who had some moments at Ohio State. But, you know, it was not like he was going into games and lighting it up. So. I think you have kind of a weird mix of things going on there, right? I mean, Miami's offense stunk before. I don't know how much better it's going to be in 2019. I mean, it helps that they have Jeff Thomas back, but Jeff Thomas didn't play this weekend, so I don't, I don't know what you know what to expect from. I think there's Thomas. a little bit of yeah, I think there's a little bit of panic set again because there was an expectation that he would come in and start right away. You know, there's a reason he 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 filed for the waiver. There's a reason they went out and got a transfer like him in the first place because the quarterbacks they had, you know, were a problem last year. So now there's a little bit of panic in that, oh, it doesn't look like this guy's even the starter right now. He may even be the, the second or third stringer. But I also think that, uh, I just, I don't know. I, I've never seen quite a thing where people, so many people are rooting against him, I guess, because he's outspoken on Twitter, like you said. I don't think Ohio State fans like the way he handled announcing to everybody at the Rose Bowl that, oh, you know, bring it on when Justin Fields transferred in and then transferred. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. This was not a one-practice thing, by the way. I mean, every Manny Navarro has been covering the whole spring camp for our, The Athletic, and he, a lot of his stories have been to the effect of how much T. Martell is struggling as a passer. So we shall see what comes of that. Before we, before we move on, can we talk about one other five-star transfer quarterback? I love talking about five-star uh, transfer quarterbacks. I know you do. So, Are you talking about the guy in Oklahoma? High, no, I'm not. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about him plenty. But sky-high expectations, Jacob Eason. Yep. But if, if you read from people who are close to uh, the coverage on Washington, Jake Hain, who looks kind of like a walk-on. He's not. He was the backup last year, has been the guy who's been the— the most impressive, apparently. That would be quite the development. Um, well, again, I mean, you talk to people around Georgia, they were not as gung-ho on, on Jacob Eason. He's big and he's got a big arm, but there's a lot more to play in the position than that. So if you're a Washington fan, are you just like, hey, I, I know Chris Peterson, the best guy is going to play? What? How do you read this situation right now? Well, I think it's a different situation. And the one we were talking about at Miami... You saw who the other choices were last season. If Tate Martell's not better than those choices, that's a problem. Whereas at Washington, you're replacing a four-year starter. Um, but he's not. Yeah, but he's not the starter. That's the point. No, but the point is, you know, I think yes, five-star transfer. We all assumed he'd be the guy by default. But you know, Chris Peterson has been recruiting other quarterbacks this whole time. It's not inconceivable that the best guy on the roster is not the transfer, but somebody that he recruited in the last couple of years. This is a, a note, a tweet from our uh, 
our friend Brock Heward, who knows the University of Washington football probably about as any as well as anybody in the media, towards Mike Varell, who's one of their beat writers now. Jacob Eason took the first starting snaps, but Jake Hayner went 14 of 17 in scrimmage drills, completed his first 13 passes. He was the more crisp and accurate of the two, at least today. Brock Heward's response to that. Been this way from what I'm hearing most of the first few weeks of spring. Puts UW and Chris Peterson at a crossroads. Does the best man win, or does the player with the most upside yet still most to prove win? The reps remaining this spring will be a fascinating study and tell. I mean, I think Chris Peterson's probably the last coach who would decide who his starter is based on the recruiting rankings, right? Absolutely, because think of who his most successful quarterback of all time was. That would be Kellen Moore, who I don't kind of has some Jake Hainerish physical, you know, appearance in terms of just very, very average, but was a phenomenal college quarterback. I'm not saying Jake Hainer can is going to be the next Kellen Moore, but to, to your point, that was a guy who really, really th- thrived. And we'll see if Jake Hainer ends up pulling a big upset and becoming the starting quarterback there. That would be one of the bigger upsets in quarterback competitions in recent memory. But now remember. Jacob Eason's from there, so I don't, I, you know, I don't care what his his you know stature is coming out of Georgia. Clearly, if he wanted to transfer to Washington, Washington was going to take him. This wasn't a case of we don't have any quarterbacks, we desperately need somebody. You know, this wasn't a, a guy that was going to play right. He sat out a year, so we'll see. Let the best man win. Uh, it would definitely be quite the career trajectory for Jacob Eason if he goes from a true freshman starter in the SEC to a backup. Uh, as a fourth, now fourth-year player in the Pac-12. Should we get to the mailbag? We should. Okay, this one comes from Mike Buckland, pronounced Buckland, from Savage, Minnesota. Hi, Stu and Bruce. With spring football concluding, we are officially... There are a few spring games left, Mike, including Georgia's next week and Washington's the week after, but you're right. It's starting to wrap up. Are we officially in the nearly five-month doldrums for college football diehards? To give us light at the end of the tunnel, which games are you each most looking forward to in the first few weeks of the season? I know my answer because I was just at this place. I think that we're going to have the same answer because I was at the other place. That's true. Goes to. <laughs> Goes to. That's true. You're right. <laughs> LSU at Texas week two. By the way, Bruce, you're going to be very jealous, but you remember I I wrote about torchies in the mailbag uh, last week? Tor- they, sent you, they sent you food and coupons. Torchies tweeted at me and said... Uh, that's no big deal. Torchy's tweeted at me, too. They said, come back on September 9th. We hear there's a big game in town, and I think I might take them up on that. But, yeah, it's uh, one of those games where, you know, these are both programs that are, are desperate and hungry to compete for national championships and make it into the playoff. And I think this game will say a lot about the state of those two teams and what position they're in. Sam Ellinger has a chance to maybe put himself high up in the Heisman contention if he has Stu, a good game. Stu, 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 I just stop. said it right. You, what did you just say? Ellinger. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, I thought you said Ellinger again. I've been told that I've been mispronouncing his name for about a year now, but I was just there, and actually I was on the radio. I was, uh, Austin Station interviewed me after my story on him went up, and I kept hearing him say it over and over again, Ellinger, Ellinger, Ellinger. So I confirmed at the end just to make sure we're all on the same page here. That doesn't mean I won't slip into Ellinger mode every so often. So if you were the Vegas odds... What's the point spread on that game? I actually saw what the early point spread on that game is. It was um, LSU minus five on the road, which is a little surprising. It's surprising to me, too, because it is on the road. What would you make it? Probably more or less. I mean, I do think LSU is the favorite 
there's understandable skepticism with Texas. We've been how many times have we heard in the last decade that Texas is back? But I definitely I definitely think Texas has the better quarterback. And there's going to be some some guys we haven't seen much of to this point having a big impact in that game. But I'd say like LSU minus two. Okay, because that game is if that game was on a neutral site, I think LSU would be the favorite. I'm a little surprised that they're not the favorite. Maybe by the time we get closer to that game, that'll swing closer to Texas. Texas has more question marks on defense. That I think is the difference. Both teams beat Georgia. LSU beat them soundly, and and Texas beat them pretty good too. That game wasn't that close until the till the end. But yeah, that to me that's the most intriguing matchup of the early, early season. And I think also what's on the line there, that is a huge game for the Big 12. Yep. Now, because it's an SC Big 12 matchup, it's at a Big 12 site, the way Texas finished last year. And also, I mean, Sam Ellinger is in the thick of the Heisman race. I think he will make a run at the Heisman. I'm really ex- interested to see Keontae Ingram, you know, what he what he can do as a sophomore. I watched their Texas spring game and one of the, one of the people on with Lowell Galindo, uh, one of the analysts said, you know what, they expect him to make the same leap Sam made from freshman to sophomore year. If Ingram does that, Texas might be a playoff team, you know, because I, I really think that's the kind of uh, counterpunch they need to the to Colin Johnson is going to be a problem for defenses. Ellinger brings a lot of brings a lot to the game it, it, from his own physicality in the run game. That's a really dangerous offense. And um so, I, I, you know, count me in on that one as well. Let me ask you a quick thing related to when you said about Sam and the Heisman race, and I brought it up as well. But I think we would both agree that Trevor Lawrence and Tua are kind of in a class of their own in terms of the, the way they're viewed and the, and the hype surrounding them right now. So in a scenario where, let's say, both Clemson and Alabama make the playoff again, and let's assume both those guys are healthy the whole year, What's the scenario where Sam or any other guy breaks that stranglehold? Like, doesn't it seem like one of those two would almost certainly win the Heisman? I don't. We've seen almost every year now where somebody comes off the radar and the favorite doesn't win it. Right. I mean, nobody was talking about Kyler Murray last year, right? So, I mean, you know, this is the same lesson over and over again. I think one thing that happens a little bit is, and I'm not saying that either one of these quarterbacks won't have a fantastic year. But the expectations builds where it almost becomes like, and again, this isn't like Bryce Love's year was like derailed by injury and everything. But like when you have so much of a buildup, man, it's hard to live up to that, right? People start to pick, you know, find the flaws and find stuff that may not be there. It's just the expectations are sky high. So I don't, I mean, look, if, if, if Sam Ellinger lights up a good LSU defense and they win that game, He's going to be right there in the Heisman race because he means as much to that team as his team. And, you know, like Clemson was great before Trevor Lawrence showed up. Alabama was great before Tua showed up. Now, they made those places, made those offenses better. But Sam is a different animal there. I mean, you could say he's as valuable to that program as any player is in the country. So, oh, yeah, I mean, that's that's, that was the theme of my story there the other day was just how much he means to that program and to that city. And I agree. The crazy thing is last year, the three Heisman finalists, right, were um, Kyler Murray, Dwayne Haskins, and Tua, and none of them had started a game the year before. So that just tells you that you could put out all these preseason lists, and 
but they could come, these guys can come from anywhere. The only thing is, usually that requires the front runners to slip up at some point, right? Trevor Lawrence has to lose a game at some point. Tua has to either lose a game or, you know, maybe... His, Tua didn't lose maybe, a game last year, though. He had the, the ultimate, what could, everything that could go wrong except that his team still won the game. Uh, contributed to him losing, obviously. Maybe this year his stats are way down because his he doesn't click with Sark, or I don't know, whatever. Yeah, it, you know, it, any of those things. Look, if Alabama goes nine and three, he's not going to win the Heisman. But if it, they have another, if it's another year where it's twelve, uh, thirteen and zero Clemson and thirteen and zero Alabama, it's going to take a lot for somebody outside of those two to rise in there. The other thing I wanted to bring up, Texas. The reason that point spread is what it is. Preseason FPI rankings, which nobody knows how they're calculated. Take them for what they're worth, but they tend to be in kind of not that different than Vegas's rankings. Uh, LSU is fourth, and Texas is not in the top 25 at all. Okay, Pre- so th- is this the ESPN FPI rankings? That yeah, is, but let me give you just to show, just to uh, show you that it's not one, unique to them. Let, yeah. me, let me throw one at you, and you explain it to me then. Mm-hmm. Who's number 15 on the FPI rankings? Yeah, I can't explain that to you. The uh, Tennessee Vols. I saw that, and I was like, I don't understand that at all. I get it. They have 10 starters back, and I actually think Jared Guarantano is pretty good. But, I mean, that was a team that went 5-7 and seven last year. I know the schedule is easier, but how do, like, how do they make them 15? Recruited, so if you notice, there's a whole lot of SEC in here. And I think that's because recruiting rankings play a big part in these preseason rankings. But let me just pull up Bill Connolly's preseason S&P as a point of comparison. It's another you know, preseason power ranking, the one that John Feinstein went off on because Army wasn't ranked high enough. All right, in his rankings, LSU is fourth, Tennessee is 21st, and Texas, oof, 35th. I have a theory in terms of... Uh, Stat- stats are for idiots. <laughs> Texas, if you look back at last season, won a lot of close games. I think six or seven one-score wins. But also, as Tom Herman pointed out to me, they were one of the least explosive teams in the country. And so the fact that Ellinger had 16 touchdowns is in part, rushing touchdowns is in part because their running backs didn't break off big plays at all. And explosiveness definitely factors into Bill's ranking. So, you know, they won 10 games. To their credit, they won 10 games, but they did it without being a very explosive team. And I think you mentioned Keontae Ingram. He's one of several guys who they feel like will help change that this year. Should we move on to a different college football team? Sure. Oh, well, real quick, he asked for both of us to say the game we're most looking forward to in the first few weeks of the season, and we both said the same game. Should we perhaps throw one other one out there? Okay. Is it a Michigan game? Because I'm very interested to see Michigan, but you already mentioned, we already kind of alluded to the Michigan-Georgia match. Are you talking about Michigan-Army or Michigan? Because Michigan-Notre Dame play next year, but it's not till late October. Michigan-Army is the same weekend as Ohio State-Cincinnati, by the way, which I think both are kind of interesting under-the-radar matchups. Oh, I wonder what time they'll be if you could go to both. Uh, I don't think you can go to both. I mean, that's uh, probably not. That's probably a little bit too far a drive. Maybe if you had a helicopter. Well, we mentioned Georgia-Notre Dame, obviously. What about, okay, I'll give you one. Auburn-Oregon, week one at Jerry World. I was talking about with somebody this week. This You're a big Justin Herbert guy, right? Love him. Pretty big. I don't think he would have been first pick in the draft, though. I think, I think the hype got a little too, too overblown on that one. 
So I have not yet managed to find to watch an Oregon game where Justin Herbert dominated. I know he has had those games, but the games I've watched, he has not. And unfortunately, my last memory of him was in that awful bowl that you and I were both at with Michigan State. What was it, seven to six? It was seven to six. Yeah. So I want to see what it's all about. And uh, Auburn's going to have a pretty good defense. Derek Brown's back. So, you know, is this the game where Justin Herbert's going to have his big kind of here's what the NFL is all excited about game on national TV? Yeah, in that game, Stu, basically the MVP of the game was Dylan Mitchell, who was really his his go-to guy, but really the only receiver he could lean on. Dylan Mitchell moved on to the NFL, but from talking to Oregon staff, they are excited about two of the receivers they have who are newcomers, Micah Pittman, who is an early enrollee, very physical freshman, and Juwan Johnson, who's like a power forward size kid, grad transfer from Penn State. I think they will both help him a lot. Uh, the O-line should be good. But again, I'm with you a little bit. You know, we we had a Justin Herbert game where he played very well against Nebraska, but that turned out to be a pretty awful Nebraska team. That was in uh, Mike Riley's last season. Michigan State is a good defense. There's no taking away from that. But yeah, if he's going to be the guy that a lot of people thought was a you know top ten kind of talent, we need to see a lot more from him. And I think that's going to be a good test because it's not just Derek Brown. He's great. That is a great defensive line Auburn's got back they always have athletes we don't know who their quarterback's going to be that's a big battle there you know between Joey Gatewood and Bo Nix is there and then they have two other guys in in contention so that's plus I mean beating Auburn if you're Oregon is not going to like change the image of the Pac-12 but they need to have some of these things sooner than later right oh they're so rare that they get to play a Pac-12 SEC game so yeah they could definitely use it also, before Oregon Ducks fans crushed me on Twitter, I do now. I, I did watch one game where Justin Herbert was outstanding. The Stanford game where he completed some insane number of passes in a row, but they lost. So kind of marred it a little bit, but he was pretty outstanding in that game. Bruce, we have now, this is five years we've been doing the Audible, I think, almost five years. Mm-hmm. And I think this question is the most Bruce question we have ever received. This is the question you were born to answer. Ready? Okay, yeah. Brian Griffith, and by the way, the subject is, quote, once they get into a weight room. Brian Griffith, hey folks, when discussing college recruiting, you always hear about, quote, once we get them into a college weight room and how players will transform in the first couple of years. Similarly, I sometimes hear about players will change, quote, once they're in an NFL weight room. How different is the weight training and nutrition culture and support between elite high school program, power five school, and NFL? I definitely think it, it varies because you hear of some some kids who come from a program and, and from high school and they're already really well developed. And this is a case in point. Alabama signed the number one, according to 247, defensive lineman in the country. He came from New Jersey, Antonio Alfano. He's already there. The guy who created the biggest buzz inside that program so far is a guy named DJ Dale. The defensive lineman has drawn some comparisons to Deron Payne. And so I was talking to a coach who's been there who I would trust his opinion on this subject about as well as anybody. And he said DJ Dale is phenomenally well coached, just great with his hands, plays with the base. Just whoever he had in high school did a remarkable job with this kid. And so sometimes you get that where they come out that well developed and everything. And other times, and I go back to the meat market days for this. I remember Ole Miss was recruiting one linebacker, and the recruit the the recruiter 
was in that area said, there's a kid from Florida, he goes, he eats two meals a day and one of them is Skittles. <laughs> you know, it's like basically when we get him here, he will get on a nutrition plan and he will, you know, we'll be able to feed him better than what he's getting at home. And that's all part of it. And I think sometimes you see guys, you're like, how did this guy put on 30 pounds of muscle? And you'll hear, you'll see people on Twitter go, that's impossible. Well, it's, it's, it's not impossible if, you know, what they were used to was just not what, you know, most people are, are typically expecting. And so I think you see that from time to time and, and it varies from, from program to program. I mean, we have plenty of examples of guys who come from Iowa and the development that they have there, uh, Kirk Ferentz puts his guys, you know, puts into his guys in terms of the expectations and, and how they develop and how they first evaluate the, the athlete, but also how they develop them. That's real. I mean, we see so many examples of guys who, who may not have been highly recruited and, and turn out to be big time NFL talent. And I think, you know, I was in Nebraska last week and it reminded me of my last trip there where Scott Frost talked about that was the piece, a big part of what's been missing in Nebraska. They just were not physically developing those guys in the weight room the way he was used to and the way they were under Tom Osborne. I think a lot of that has changed. And so, you know, it, you don't have to have Alabama's resources to have a great, you know, strength and conditioning program. I think that's the part that, you know, sometimes you get hung up on, okay, this guy was a five-star at a high school, but you don't know. You can get that development in a lot of different places if they have a proven plan and the kid really buys in. I mean, Andre Diller is a great example. He may be the first offensive lineman taken. And when he was in high school, he was a 6'4", 240-pound guy that Washington State rolled the dice on. And now he was, whatever, 6'5", 315, and still super athletic. So I don't think it has to be this particular school, but I think you have to have the buy-in and the belief. And, and to me, that's part of it. As far as the NFL side, I think that that's another part of the equation because so many guys go outside on their own to do a lot of that. I mean, I go out to UCLA from time to time. You see a ton of NFL guys training there in the off season because it's where they live. It's not like in college where you're around the same facility 11, 12 months out of the year. I just randomly remembered, we talked about all these spring games. You were actually at USC for what their last practice of the spring. Second to last practice. Yeah. And you were very complimentary of them on Twitter for a team that, you know, a lot of people are very down on right now. So why don't you give us some, some of the lowdown? Yeah. I'm glad you framed it that way because I came away thinking, and I don't know if it's because the bar for me in my mind was so low. Like, I, I don't know if I was expecting to see, like, like the, I forgot what the team, the Texas State Armadillos or whatever that team that Scott Bakula coached. Like, in part of me, was like, was I going to show up, expect to see, like, a ragtag group? But they, a couple of things. They just, this is the obvious. You come away going, oh, of course they have players. It's USC. I mean, they've recruited, they've recruited a bunch of kids for the last four years. They, they still have them. So when you look, they don't have 10 great receivers, but they have four or five who match up with anybody. When you look at Pittman and Devon Williams and Amon Ross St. Brown and Tyler Vaughns, I mean, that's as good a first four as anybody else has. Got a bunch of big athletic guys in the front seven, and I would expect a big year from Jay Tufele. I'd expect a big year from EA Naote Ote, who they, they're really excited about. The part that I'm not sure of them is, again, their offensive line, which has been underwhelming for a long time. We'll see. In the secondary, they're missing their two best defensive backs. But 
the the vibe around the place was very upbeat and positive. And when I talked to people inside the program, I was like, well, what exactly changed? The biggest thing that, you know, you hear people put their finger on is some of the new assistants they brought in probably are a little more upbeat and brought a different energy than the guys they replaced. And people are very excited about what Graham Harrell brings there, not just the offensive system, but even talking to Clancy Pendergast, who was the defensive coordinator who was there before, just said, I think our guys going up against it and the identity and knowing what they're getting and kind of being able to use it as a benchmark them a lot. So they have talent. I don't know. I still don't change my opinion. I think they're probably an eight and four, nine and three kind of team. But I don't know. You know, I, I don't know who's going to be the quarterback. I mean, the default is probably JT Daniels. I think there's a lot of people at USC or inside USC. We're hoping Jack Sears would kind of take it over and he's had some up and down practices and i think that's been a little bit wait wait wait. why are why uh, do people already want to throw out jt daniels this guy was the second coming a year ago what do you mean the second coming he was the big time recruit who reclassified who started from day one as a true freshman i know they weren't that good last year but he was still a true freshman so i just assume that he he will not only be the quarterback, but with the help of Graham Harrell, could be a very, very good quarterback. And you're telling me some people want him benched? I think there's some people there around the program and inside the program who think Jack Sears might have more upside uh, on it. Jack Sears is a more athletic quarterback, but he's he's honestly been not as consistent. JT Daniels throws it pretty well. He's a smart kid. Um, but again, I, I think even the, the high school kid who's an early enrollee, Keaton Slovis, he's been a pleasant surprise. I think he's been better than they thought. He throws it as well as any of them. So I don't want to say it's a four-horse race. My guess is it's going to be, it probably will be JT Daniels. But I think the quarterback battle is closer than people probably would assume from the outside in. And it sounds like from from where you're coming from with it is definitely closer than you probably would think. Just one other thing on the Jack Sears thing. I think people were very impressed with what they saw in the little bit he did play last year. And so I think that added to the, to the intrigue of his talent. And maybe this is a function, you know, Oh, the backup quarterback's always the most popular guy and the guy everybody, you know, can't wait to see. Cause you don't really know necessarily his flaws where the starter, maybe people are looking at it a little differently. Another question where you are expertly equipped to answer from James Birdsong Hey, Bruce and Stu, do you find it strange that Ruffin McNeil's only had one stint as a head coach? Uh, here's a quick recap of his six-year career at East Carolina. Went 42-34 and 34 overall and 30-18 and 18 in conference. Made a bowl game in four of his six years. Beat several Power 5 teams, all with at least six wins. NC State, UNC twice, and Virginia Tech twice. Hired Lincoln Riley as his offensive coordinator. After his dismissal, his replacement went 9-26 and 4-20 and in conference play. Maybe I'm overlooking how much Lincoln Riley contributed to, his, contributed to his success. Maybe he wasn't recruiting at a high enough level. To me, though, it seemed like this would be a nice hire for an above-average Group of Five program. P.S. I am not Ruffin McNeil, just someone trying to understand why he hasn't gotten another job. Hey, he did. A, you know that that was a I thought a bonehead decision. I think some people there actually thought, oh, we'll be able to hire Lincoln Riley back, not knowing Lincoln Riley's relationship with Ruffin McNeil. So I, I think for, for a lot of people, they looked at and go, well, Ruffin McNeil's age, they weren't sure if he was going to be another guy that they would, that somebody else would hire. I'm not sure what the job is that 
that Ruffin would be in line with because when you get fired from, from East Carolina, you know, where's your next stop? It's not going to be at a power five job. So at this stage of his career, I think he's very comfortable being a trusted advisor to Lincoln Riley at OU. I mean, he's very close to, to Lincoln's family. I know he's very close to Dennis Simmons, who's also on the staff's family. So I think, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people he's really close to Benny Wiley, the strength coach, which is another old Texas tech guy. So I, my gut feeling on this, and I haven't talked to Ruffin about it specifically in a while, but the way that whole thing ended at East Carolina was pretty awkward. And I think it was tough on him and his wife. I don't know what the job he would get, be able to get as a head coach, but I'm not sure if it would, if it would satisfy him or you know, be as comfortable for him as the one he has right now. Fair enough. Let's wrap up with a question about a certain school in Evanston, Illinois, from Derek Johnson. Stu and Bruce, with the completion of Northwestern's shiny new practice facility, is it not fair to take them out of the scrappy underdog category and into a program that should expect to win six to eight games a year between, say, that they've won that many or more the last year? No, no. <laughs> between Pat Fitzgerald's success, the facility, and prominent Northwestern alums on two of the most popular ESPN programs of the last 16 years, Talking Northwestern up, he's referring to Mike Wilbon and Mike Greenberg, respectively. Northwestern's only mild disadvantage is low attendance at a bad stadium. And as a Nebraska fan, I actively desire for North Nebraska to blow Northwestern out, not just beat them this year. So congrats on that. What is it? What am I being congratulated on? Oh, the comeback last year, probably. All right. Well, maybe I should take this one at first. Can I just throw out, like, I don't think the last point about what the two ESPN personalities talking them up, I don't think that does anything to me. Except that's annoy a, people. I, that's a I'm, I'm fully yeah, aware of how insufferable uh, the Northwestern media mafia uh, has become, especially after the NCAA tournament run a couple years ago. And I was guilty of that during the basketball. But even I cringe a little bit uh, about those guys and, and football. You know, I think it's, it's tough for you and I to put ourselves in the shoes of an 18-year-old and how try to picture how Northwestern is visualized now. But needless to say, you know, they, have not, they were not alive during the years when they were awful. Nor, now, I know they don't look at them as, a, as Alabama by any means, but at this point, I think most people under a certain age or people who've just been following you know, college football very closely know Northwestern as Pat Fitzgerald and a program that goes to a bowl game pretty much every year and was in the Big Ten title game last year. So I think the question he's asking is kind of outdated. Like They're already expected to win six to eight games a year. I think the, the more difficult question and the one I would ask you is, is it realistic with the fancy facility and um, a really good coach and all that to take it to the next level up? Or is it will Northwestern that once for whom winning nine or 10 games a year was once a historical aberration. Are they good enough to do, to do, to do what Stanford has done over the last eight years or so? I don't know. That's, that is the better question. Stanford wins big recruiting battles. You know, I remember my crew did a bunch of Northwestern games last year. And one of the things that was a common thread was a lot of guys, including Isaiah Bowers, uh, including their Montre Hardage, who was their best defensive back. They were guys who like Northwestern was their only power five offer. And so the question is, can they win some of these recruiting battles? Stanford wins a lot of them. They, I mean, to me, Stanford's on another level from almost every other place like that. If a kid is a high academic kid and he's a really good football player, Stanford is really, really hard to beat. And they're just different. And, um, you know, when you started talk talking about, before you said 
the part about these kids weren't alive when Northwestern was horrible. I thought you were going to say, I think North Evanston is a really cool little town. There's a lot of charm there. It's nice. The, the training facility is really nice. The game day atmosphere there is a different deal. You know, if you're going to bring a kid on an official visit weekend and then he goes to the game on Saturday and he's going to compare it, let's say they're recruiting against Notre Dame, let's say they're recruiting against Michigan, that's a tough thing to, to handle. Their facilities maybe is not on, a, is on the water, but at the same time, they're, they're, their facilities are really nice in other places too, but their game day experience is going to be way different than what you're going to show a kid if you go to, go to a Northwestern game on a Saturday. One thing I've learned over the years covering this sport, recruiting doesn't really change. Who does well in recruiting really doesn't change that much anymore relative to what happens on the field, right? I mean, Texas, mediocre for a decade, still recruiting top five classes. USC has been pretty mediocre, still recruiting top five classes. Those are just the schools that get the big name recruits. And then I'll give you a good example on the opposite end of the spectrum. I was at Oklahoma State recently. Oklahoma State's been winning 10 games a year, practically almost every year, not last year, but for most years before that, for a decade. And they still can't beat Oklahoma or Texas for recruits. It's just the way it is, right? So uh, Northwestern is not going to beat Ohio State, Michigan for recruits. They often are, like you said, they often are signing guys who's, who don't have another Power 5 offer. Uh, they're often, you know, keep in mind, their pool is limited in the first place to, to guys that can get into the school. But, you know, that's, that's who they have to deal with. So they're always going to have to be a little bit scrappy and a little bit of an overachiever. But I do think that at this point, they have enough of a recent history to shoot, to aim a little bit higher than maybe they have in the past. But I'll tell you what, your point about the stadium is absolutely right. It's, it's, a, it's not a good game day atmosphere, to say the least. And it is what it is. You know, they've, they've, they've tried everything. And at the end of the day, they can't get more than 25,000, 30,000 uh, Northwestern fans there. Now, if they're playing Ohio State, they'll sell out, for, but half the stadium will be red, if not more than half. So that definitely plays a role in recruiting. You know who's in that example, by the way, that's interesting. You know, I don't want to say it's a counter to what you just said about like who everybody who's kind of the, the usual suspects do well in recruiting. Mm-hmm. Purdue had a top 25 class last year uh, under Jeff Brom, and they had some significant wins head to head against other people. So that's one that is kind of one that is, I would say, flared up. But it's like that would get people's attention that they did, you know, that they did better than Wisconsin and Virginia Tech and Miami and, you know. Uh, some other schools like that that you would probably think have more traditional success. To me, that's one that that is one that kind of broke through a little bit. It just came out last week that Jeff Brom is now the third highest paid coach in the Big Ten uh, with his new contract. So Purdue's all in on football. You know, they're signing top twenty-five classes. They're paying their coach, you know, high, high money to say the least. So we'll see if that can become more than a one-year thing. You know, you do see. You know, in any given year, you'll see some schools that perform much better than they usually do, but then they tend to revert back. I mean, Wisconsin has been good for 20 years, and they're still the school that finds the under the radar guys and the two. Like, they're not getting um, you know five star kids to come to Wisconsin. So it's just I don't know. I can't really explain it. That the reputations or the um, the statuses of the programs and recruiting don't change much from year to year. And so when we talk about you know, Kirby Smart coming to Georgia and elevating their recruiting, well, he's elevating it from number seven to number one. You know, he's not 
he didn't take over a program that was a recruiting dumpster fire or turn them into the, you know, there's just, it's incremental, the changes that these coaches make. Yeah. All right, Stu, I'm going to give a shout out this week. Oh, wow. You should have warned me. I haven't, <laughs> uh, <laughs> haven't done one of those in a while. Shout out to Brandon Silvers. He's the old Troy quarterback who won in Baton Rouge, but that's not why we're doing the shout out. Shout out is because he got signed by the Jets out of the out of the Alliance, the A. I knew I recognized that name. That's why. <laughs> Here's what's kind of remarkable about this. You know who the other three quarterbacks on his team were? Yeah, ah, shoot. I just saw this. Uh, I'm going to give you a who's who. They were, of, they were of, much higher m- names you would recognize much more so than his. So one is Zach Mettenberger, who had the two probably best receiver <laughs> combination of anybody in college. Another one is Christian Hackenberg from Penn State, who obviously was former five-star himself. And the third one was the, uh, the beloved John Manziel, the former Heisman Trophy winner from Texas A&M and first-round pick. And of all of them, he's the one that got signed. Yes. Well, that... what, would two, what would 2014 have thought about this reality? That Brandon Silvers, who I think was a two- or three-star recruit at Troy, is the, is the guy the NFL wants right now. One day there will be books written about Christian Hackenberg. One of, one of the more puzzling, I think we at this point can call him a bust, right? One, one of the more puzzling quarterback busts of recent history in that he actually started out on a, he started, his first year at Penn State, he was great. And then it just went downhill from there. And then there was this note, remember before James Franklin started getting it going there, there was a faction of fans who already hated him because they thought he ruined Christian Hackenberg. But then things didn't get any better in the NFL, and now you're telling me he wasn't even the best team on his uh, best quarterback on his AAF team. Yeah, and again, I would imagine some of this is, or maybe a lot of this is, to you know his confidence taking a big hit, and he didn't seem to rebuild it. Obviously, Johnny Manziel had some issues beyond just just that that he he's been dealing with from his end of his uh, Texas A&M time to the NFL to now. But yeah, it's it's kind of kind of crazy to watch who. I don't say who emerges from this, but just uh, that was fascinating to me. Is and it's not to say that that Silver's is going to turn out to be the starter of the Jets because obviously Sam Darnold's their guy, but um, just the fact that he got it got on there. John Wolford, I think, is on with the Rams, the Wake Forest quarterback. So there's been some some positive stuff that came out of the league that went went belly up last week. As always, send your questions to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We'll come back next week with some more spring football hot takes after we watch. It's kind of crazy. Most of the games were this past weekend. There's only a few left already at this point, but a few notable programs still to go. And uh, next week we'll come back, and I'll tell you all the big conclusions I've made, and Bruce will tell you to take them all with a grain of salt. No response. I got one question for you. Yeah. I, we made it through this podcast without you bringing up Rick Ross and Les Miles. How did that happen? That's a good point. We could have devoted a whole other section of the podcast to some of the entertainment that went down in some of these spring games. Ludacris played mm-hmm. at Texas. The Les Miles Rick Ross thing was. You, what, what did you think? Just from going out to practices, Rick Ross's music is played more than anybody else that I can think of when you're out there. So the idea that they had that they got him probably resonated with their players more than almost anybody else they could get. I just hope Les wins. I really do. Because so far this offseason, he's been doing all kinds of stuff like this. And it's very Les. But I do wonder or worry that he's almost becoming a caricature of himself at this point. When he was doing this stuff at LSU, he was also winning national championships. 
So, and now, you know, he's at a place where, well, what would be considered success for Les Miles' first season? Four and eight? Yeah, that would be a little better than what they've done. Okay, so I, I hope he can get there. That video is pretty fantastic. You, you like his chances to get to four and eight? I do not. All right, we'll see you next time. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to The Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review while you're at it. It helps get the word out. Thanks to Trader Joe's for being our presenting sponsor. Our producer is Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on iTunes and Spotify. Follow me, Stu, at SL Mandel on Twitter and Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And subscribe to The Athletic if you haven't done so already. You can try it for free, seven-day free trial at theathletic.com slash free trial. So come on, get over here. about it for years ah, yeah. whoa, whoa. as you've probably heard by now we've teamed up with betmgm this season we'll be using betmgm lines to make all of our picks and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week if you haven't signed up for betmgm yet use bonus code the athletic and you'll get a one-year subscription to the athletic plus up to a fifteen hundred dollar first bet offer on your first wager with betmgm here's how it works Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.